Okay, let's do some quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. That's obvious. But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. To reduce costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. Here's the thing. Information is power. Information is money. Literally, the currency of today's world of, of entrepreneurship is information. And if you could bring all of the, your, the information about your business into one dashboard, this is incredibly valuable. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform and one source of the truth about your business. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, access from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. And you're improving efficiency by bringing all of your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. This is so valuable. You just hit a button and you can see all the information about your business instead of having to like call five different departments and get all these emails and put it all together and make sense of it. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math, see how you'll profit with NetSuite. Backed by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash james, netsuite.com slash james netsuite.com slash james want to connect with a family member who doesn't speak your language then check out the language learning program rosetta stone on desktop or as an app rosetta stone is designed to immerse you in the language you're learning through an intuitive process Plus, the True Accent feature even gives you feedback on your pronunciation. And with a lifetime membership, you have access to all 25 offered languages. Get started today. Visit rosettastone.com backslash pod 50 to get 50% off your lifetime membership now. That's rosettastone.com backslash pod 50 for 50% off. This isn't your average business podcast, and he's not your average host. This is the James Altucher Show on the Choose Yourself Network. Today on the James Altucher Show. I certainly believe um, that these technologies, certainly AI and genomics, genetics revolution, are going to fundamentally transform our lives. But everybody needs to be part of the conversation about how. Everybody needs to have enough information so that they can they can have a dialogue with people around them. Like, what are you doing? Like, what are you doing to help us prepare for this future that's going to be so, so different? I mean, then that's the basic big picture story of all of this is we are developing the capacity to read, write, and hack biology. All of biology, including our own. The human body is just massively complex. Right now, we're transitioning from a world of generalized healthcare based on population averages. If you go to the doctor, your doctor will treat you because you're a human, but we're moving toward the world of precision medicine based on your individual biology. And so increasingly, and it will happen more in the future, you'll go and your doctor will say, well, based on you being you, we're going to give you this treatment for your disease, which if you had a different biology, we would treat differently. 
And what this is going to mean is that everybody is going to have their genome sequenced because the cost, I said, it went from a billion dollars to $800. It's going to be re relatively nothing within a, within a decade. So everybody will be sequenced either at birth or before birth. And what that means is we're going to have billions of people. We're going to have their genetic information and their electronic health and life records. We're going to be able to use uh, algorithms to understand even these very complex traits and whether they're diseases like heart disease or traits like Intel, like IQ or height or personality style and all of those things. So the big data challenge is what it's going to allow us to understand these incredibly complex uh, situations. So, so right, so the, so first up again, Hacking Darwin, this, this book is a guidebook, whether you're an investor, entrepreneur, or just want to be scared shitless about the future, this book is perfect. Or for me, I want to just figure out how fast it's going to be before I can inject myself with more brain cells so I could be smarter. But uh, <laughs> You're doing great, as is. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm doing a sacred cacao ceremony in a lingerie showroom in Santa Monica. Oh, that's fun. Yeah. Why is it in a lingerie showroom? Um... Because it's an aphrodisiac? <laughs> no, you know, the funny, it was like I was on my book tour and I was looking for a place in LA, in LA to do kind of a multi-host event. And I just asked atheist Yahweh. And then like the next day I got this email just totally out of the blue saying, hey, we really love for you to come. We'd love to do an event for you. Anyway, so then I decided like this could be a thing. Like I do stuff in your place that I want to do that you feel is good for you. That's the thing about retail now is that they have to figure out what to do with their yeah. places. Yes. So and yeah. that's that's part of the job of being a retailer now. But I can't start with the cacao shaman it's stuff. It's done. Joe, done. Yeah, Joe Rogan did that. Well, you but, have my whole my whole life available to you. Yes. No. You've done so many things. There's no way I'm um I have none of the genes for memory, so I'm gonna have to, I'm gonna need help <laughs> with saying all the different jobs you've had. But um, are we going, Jay? Um, but I do want to ask you, and just when you were just describing that story about doing a show at the lingerie showroom, right. you before that, in order to you were looking for a location and right. you prayed to what you called atheist Yawa. What's yeah. I love that. What what well, is that? You know, if I was a believing person, I would just pray to Yahweh. But as an atheist, like who do you ask when you want the universe to to do you a solid? And so I was just thinking, like, I, what could happen? And then the next day, that that thing happened. So I was happy to have it. You ever read any of uh, Stephen Bachelor's books no. about uh, Buddhism? So his content—he was a Buddhist monk for many years, right. and his contention was is that Buddha was an atheist, and he kind of approaches Buddhism from that yeah. point of view, and it and kind of Buddhism falls together in this really nice way when you yeah. view it in that way. That uh, that basically this this act of surrender, as opposed to like praying to an out an external entity um, yeah. is much more Buddhist way of thinking than than people would realize. There are lots of people who think that that Buddhism itself is an atheist tradition. Yes. And I love that because in Buddhism, truth resides within each individual and it's personal. And that really speaks to me. But in in the other traditions, certainly in the Abrahamic traditions, truth resides someplace else. And I've always thought, well, I want to own it. And people say, well, if there's no God, um, why doesn't everybody go out and kill everybody else or do horrible things? And my view is how wonderful that we have the capacity to establish laws and rules and social connections that make us want to to support each other. And, and it's, that's great. It's so funny you say that because I wrote uh, 
a book, uh, Choose Yourself. And by the way, I have Jamie Messel on the podcast. (laughs) We're going to, his book, Hacking Darwin. I just want to say as a brief intro, and then we'll intro more. This book, Hacking Darwin, this is like the Bible of what the future will look like. This has so many ideas, whether you're an entrepreneur, an investor, just curious about the future, or even a science fiction novelist, as you also are, which we'll get to. This is really like open my eyes up to so many possibilities, not like in the distant future, but like 10 years from now. So, but back to uh, one thing I want to point out. So I wrote this book, uh, Choose Yourself. And the first kind of uh, wave of criticism or whatever that I occasionally get is, oh, if you choose yourself, that's so selfish. You know, people will be, you know, you have to be an ethical person. People will be doing like all these unethical things. And I said, I didn't say, choose the unethical choice. I just said, choose yourself. Why does that, why does choose yourself make you think that the automatic response is, oh, bad things will happen. Like, why don't you be a good person when you choose yourself? Like, I don't understand. It's related that why do people need something else to force them to be ethical? Like why not, you know, the whole aspect is that being ethical reduces stress. You don't have to worry about so many things and, and, and it gives you more friends and a greater sense of community, which as you show in this book and as your, your blurb guy over here, Dan Butner shows in his book, community and friendship could extend your life and quality of life. So why do people think that, um, you know, choosing yourself or having no God automatically implies lack of ethics? I think we've been educated that way. I think that we have these traditions and the history of a lot of our traditions is a small number of people were trying to think about how do you control a big number of people? And they had to do it like we're seeing now in, in our political culture here, that fear actually works. And that if the message is there's this terrible world and all these terrible things are going to happen to you and you have these external rules that are going to protect you. That's one way of doing it, but that's why I love traditions like Buddhism. And frankly, these traditions exist within every other tradition, within Judaism, within Christianity, within Islam. There are people who are saying, find that truth within yourself. Uh, Think about how can you be a better person and make your world better. In in Judaism, there's a concept of tikkun olam, that the world is cracked and it's everybody's job to try to to fix it. And I think those kinds of, of humanist traditions, which... I think are really empowering to people because it's up to you. It's not that we're going to wait for some future coming of of something else to have justice. If you want justice, build it. Build it in your life and build it in the world around you. And this will segue to parts of your book uh, because there's so many ethical issues that arise in your book. And you know, the the funny thing is, so your book's all about uh, where we are right now and what the future is in, uh, let's call it, gene editing or in the future gene writing, creating new genes, maybe even creating new forms of life or maybe vastly changing our current lives by editing or rewriting some of our genes in many ways. Like I'll just skip right to the future. Like we could be smarter, taller, even more popular, (laughs) more social, less extroverted or introverted, uh, live longer, all these things could potentially happen. And, and, and in addition to where gene editing is right now, which is eradicating all these serious diseases and you kind of tell where the technology is, but, but how the potential is just amazing. But there's all, I sort of feel like the ethical questions like, oh, can you, you know, harvest genes 
uh, in this way for, is that ethical? Because, you know, genes from embryos and then destroy the embryos. You, I feel like these type, types of ethical arguments are, are pointless. Like if you could just help large numbers of people, like a billion people, then why, why do you care about an embryo? Yeah, and my feeling, I would agree from my personal view um, that if you're having to choose between um, uh, curing or preventing some deadly disease that a real existing person has. Like blindness. It's just all, or even just some of these diseases, which genetic diseases that can cause unbelievable pain to a little kid and then kill them. And if you are saying, well, that is what we're trying uh, to cure, and we think we can do it, but we need to use these early stage embryos just to see what is and isn't possible. It's my personal view that that ought to be highly regulated, but also allowed. But I recognize, and I think we have to recognize that just that there are different kinds of people and different people have different views. And because we're all one species, I think rather than dividing ourselves into an us and a them, I think we have to at least try to say, is there a path where we can all get where we'd like to go and get there uh, and get there together? But there's there are trade-offs and some of these ethical issues, people like to live in worlds where it's totally clear, like this is totally right and this is totally wrong. But most of our lives exist in those gray areas in the middle. And the reason why I've written this book and, and uh, more broadly why I try to live the life that I lead um, is that all of life is in those in those gray areas. And if we can't find a way to, to communicate with each other and share ideas and try to find a common way forward, there are going to be a lot of problems. And when we're talking about the future of life on earth, like that's a big, big deal. And we should at least try to be inclusive. Well, you know, you you mentioned just now the, the way you live your life. Uh, you're very, you live a very... Uh, by many standard scripts of how people should live life, you've had an unusual path. Like someone might say, oh, you just wrote a book completely about genetic hacking, um, but you're not a medical doctor or a biologist or scientific researcher. Um, and I, by the way, I approve. I think yeah. the way we label things and put people in their little um, kind of very tiny and crowded lanes is a... Uh, 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 bad for society, bad, bad for science, bad for the arts and, and a, a host of things. So you, I feel like you've done, you've gone an interesting route, but you've done everything from like run for Congress to you worked for the Clinton administration. You've got a PhD in what, like Asian studies Asian history. Yeah. <laughs> so, and, and you, you, then my dream come true. You've written a bunch of science fiction novels, right. uh, the Genesis code, right. And, and, uh, and eternal, eternal sonata. sonata. And uh, they were well received. Uh, first, first off, I'm fascinated by that. Why not become just like the best science fiction novelist you could be? Like, did you sort of lose interest? No, or? no, no, not at all. On the, on the, the contrary. Um, so let me give you just a little bit of background of how I how I got here, if you don't mind. Um, in the Clinton administration, as you mentioned, I was working on the National Security Council, and my then boss. Just randomly, or like, why did no, Abby yeah. find you? All right, okay. All right. We need you. No, we're gonna, all right, let's You're, start in the beginning. We're, we're gonna, I'm gonna call this guy's grad school. Who can we put to all right, save the country from all right, okay, war? now, uh, you know, how much time we got? <laughs> all the time awesome. in the world. So let me, let me then, I'll, I'm gonna take it, uh, take it back. When I was a freshman at Brown, I met a classmate of mine, Arn Chorn Pond, who was a survivor of the Cambodian killing fields. 
I'd never met a Cambodian before. I'm from Kansas City. I'd never met any, probably anybody from Southeast Asia. Um, and when he told me his story of what his whole family had been killed and he'd been uh, alone in the jungle and had made it through a minefield to get to a refugee camp, I was so stunned first that this is, had happened in my lifetime and that I nor nobody and nobody I knew knew anything about it. Um, but second, that er, that my family at least had always been saying my father uh, was born in Austria and came here as a, as a refugee with his parents after the war. We'd always been saying never again. And it's like, well, hold on, in our lifetime, this happened somewhere else and, and nobody's talking about it. So I became obsessed and I went um, that summer, I quit my job on the first day, had a garage sale of all the crap in my parents' house, bought a ticket, went to Thailand and worked in a refugee camp, which, what was which the job changed my life. I was a, a um, camp counselor at a day camp in Kansas City. Um, bought a ticket, went to really? Thailand. You, you mean you quit such an... Uh, job was <laughs> yeah, such an exactly. excellent career options I could have been <laughs> a senior counselor yeah. had I stuck with it. Maybe you could have been the camp manager. The director, yeah. exactly, exactly. Um, anyway, it changed my life because I was there and, and you just, and, and it was incredible to see these Cambodian and Hmong Hill Tribe refugees and everything. I mean, this was the aftermath of the Vietnam War. But then I, I had this realization there is that you could spend your entire life as a refugee worker and you would be doing nothing to prevent the creation of new refugees, that the, the, the refugees are at the end of the conflict, but political decisions are at the beginning of the conflict. And it was then that I realized that I really needed to use the, the opportunities and skills such as I have them, um, and I really wanted to go into the United States government. So I, I did my, my PhD at Oxford, as you mentioned, and then um, was at Harvard Law School. And then immediately after law school, was selected as a White House Fellow, which is a it's a program to kind of get it's mid career, but I was I was very young for it into senior positions in the government. And that was what got me into the to the National Security Council. Like what, what what does someone do as a White House Fellow? So it's a really wonderful process. So the average person would be like someone in their mid thirties who is doing a let's say you're like a, a chief of police in some town in Milwaukee or something, and then they you are placed as a in a senior role in a U.S. Um, cabinet office, so you could be like a special assistant to the, to the um, whatever Secretary of Commerce or someone. I was in the National Security Council. There are people in the Defense Department, um, and so you you actually have that job for a year. But then you have all this access, and you have these programs meeting with senior officials from across the U.S. government. You travel around the world and meet with leaders of other countries. It's really, really, and some really amazing people have been have been fellows. Um, so I was really focused on at that time because I had this passion about um, how can we prevent these kinds of terrible atrocities on what can we do um, what can we do to make sure that the crises like we were then seeing in Bosnia and Rwanda that we have a way of, of responding that that at least ex does a better job of preventing these total societal explosions and and mass murders. And my boss at the time, uh, and now my very close friend, was a guy named Richard Clark. And I don't know if you know that name, but yes. Dick was the guy who, he was like a Cassandra because in this was in the 90s, he basically predicted 9-11. He said, we're going to be attacked by a group, Al-Qaeda. We have to go after this guy, Osama bin Laden. And all these people were in the government were saying, oh, that's ridiculous. You're just making work for yourself. The Cold War's over. You're looking for something new. And he was, then when 9-11 happened, he was the guy who, who had, who, sadly had said like i told you so and so can i ask like didn't we have didn't i say we yeah but like didn't 
the administration, like I guess the Clinton yeah. administration at that time, didn't they have like Osama in their sights a couple times? And they could have, I don't want to yes. say kill him, but like yeah. done something to. Yeah, absolutely, yes. Um, and it wasn't a big enough priority. I mean, there were different trade-offs and um, there was the relationship with Saudi Arabia. So absolutely. And that was- I But think, Saudi Arabia didn't like the, because the, they, they, they wouldn't let these rebels they, back they, in. They wouldn't, um, but like if the United States had recognized the level of threat that Osama bin Laden posed, they would have done what needed to be done. And that was Dick's frustration. Dick kept saying over and over, we have to do more, we have to do more. What was and his sense? Like, how did he get that sense? I mean, I'm asking this because yeah. you're a futurist. Yeah. You're predicting the no, future. No, so it's the same thing. It's the same thing. So, like, how does anybody get a sense of what's happening in the future? You see a bunch of little disparate data points. And then you have to, we all have to pull them together to tell a story. And so I think that Dick um, was seeing around the corner in a way that other people couldn't. And that's the problem. That's how I'm, I'm feeling. And I'll, I'll go back to this story, but with this book, and I'm trying to say that in 10 years, genetic engineering is going to be the topic we're all talking about. There are gonna be people marching in the streets about it, but now people don't feel it's that important to them. And how do we have a conversation when the issue hasn't yet reached a crescendo? Well, well so, so you say disparate data points and yeah. they start connecting them. I don't know, like, uh, let me try to, Let's go back and forth on this just for a sure. second. It seems like what else is happening is you see the reason why something is small and then just 10 years from now, or in Richard Clark's case, Dick Clark's case, uh, just a few years from then, the reason why it, you could predict something to be so massive is because it's not disparate data points. It's a trend that's increasing exponentially. Yeah. Like it's like Moore's law, right. you know, computing would double in power every two years. There, there's similar things happening with, you know, understanding the human genome and what maybe Clark was seeing was, um, the rise of money and adherence to Al Qaeda's message in the middle East. So it was, so rather than it was being disparate, he was seeing like a trend that was growing exponentially. And that when you see a trend like that, you can say, you can extrapolate then a few years in the future that this is going to be so massive. We're going to we're going to have to deal with it. Whereas in the beginning, it looks tiny. That's the exactly. nature of exponential yes. growth. Yeah, that's that's exactly right. And just as, as as you just said, in the early phase, and everyone uses the pennies example, where you just, I had a penny, now I have two cents, now I have four cents, now I have eight cents. It, it all seems like nothing. And that's why, um, even if you are seeing an exponential shift, and certainly on terrorism, we were seeing, we were seeing the end of the Cold War, all of these mechanisms that were empowering individuals uh, communication systems that were that were decentralized, all those things. Um, but it's hard to see because even if you see exponentiality, it doesn't amount to much in the early years. And that's and that's why. I mean, once something is kind of taking off, if you say to somebody, "Well, what are computers going to look like ten years from now?" Maybe people won't be aggressive enough in in understanding change, but they're going to recognize that a computer ten years from now is very different from a, a, a computer today. But in not all areas are people thinking that. And especially when there's some new trend, it's harder to see. And the good news is, as things play out, if you are right, the thing that you are saying, like I started writing, and I'll go back to my, my story of how I got here, but I started writing about, uh, about uh, this topic like 23, 24 years ago. Wow. And this was way before nobody, I mean, Ancient CRISPR history. didn't exist. Yeah. Like a lot of these things that now uh, most people have heard about didn't, didn't exist. And so that's, that's the harder part is when the, when the data points are more disparate and, and harder to see. Well, so, so, but it seems like if you can say, like, obviously if you can say, see a trend, not so much 
that it's small or big, but that there's this exponential quality, right. you're going to benefit in a lot of ways. You can either benefit as a futurist and write right. great books that are predictive. You can benefit as an entrepreneur, like right. like Gordon Moore did we, with Intel, right. bet his life on on Moore's law and yeah. became a multi-billionaire. Uh, you know, you know, even the computer, like George Gilder has been on the podcast. He's right. a futurist. Sure. 1994, he wrote a book, I think it was called Life After Television. Mm-hmm. He wrote recently a book called Life After Google. But in this 1994 book, he predicted what he called the teleputer, which is that of basically a small device you could carry around, make yeah. phone calls with, yeah. watch your kid playing That's soccer crazy. on a video yeah. across the country. And yeah. like nobody even knew what a web browser was then. And he's right. like predicting, you know, yeah. the iPhone. Yeah. So, so, so if I'm just thinking of Clark again and how he could have maybe presented better that this, this threat was happening, he could have showed, Hey, this, this is just math. Like right. this is an exponential growth. Think of the computer and what happened in just a few years and the yeah. same thing, but just imagine this with extremist terrorists. Yeah, no, I, he could have, and he actually did, but the problem in government is that it's like it's a competition and so different there are different political forces uh, there are different governmental forces and everybody and everything meets in the white house and certainly in the clinton administration there was I mean, there was, were great national security advisors there was a, a pretty effective apparatus the problem was imagination and it's hard for one person it's hard to bend enough people's minds because you can say, hey, this thing is coming. This is going to be really important. And if it was just in a vacuum, if that was the only question is, is terrorism going to be a bigger threat tomorrow than it was yesterday? People say, yeah, well, that that sounds about right. But that's not the question that people ask. People will ask is, well, how does this threat compared to other threats, other things that that people are, are thinking about. And that's where it gets harder. There's a bureaucratic infighting. Actually, uh, Dick and Arpietti wrote a great book called Warnings. And basically what Arpietti is, yeah. uh, has been on the podcast. I was on a plane yeah. and I didn't know who Arpietti was. He was sitting right next to me. And he starts telling me like, I was in the DIA, then other three letter yeah. agencies and <laughs> blah, blah, blah. And then he was telling me all these things that were going to happen. He's like, I Trump. never talked to people on airplanes. That's great that you guys are so, so. Uh, he, I, I started talking because I noticed he, he just was eating like tons of snacks and all this stuff. <laughs> was like, piling up great guy. And then he was telling me like, Trump's probably going to win. And this is like way before yeah. he won. And, and I'm like, oh, okay. what? Else? And I wanted to know, he was like an interrogator for the DIA. So I wanted to know what you do in interrogations. He explains to me micro expressions. So I just kept like drilling him for on hmm. different questions. And then when he came up with warnings, right. uh, he came on the podcast. Oh, that's great. Great guy, good yeah. friend. And great friend. Yeah. So, so, but yeah, so, so I guess the U.S. at the time had seen this linear Cold War. Right. It was just kind of like this face-off yeah, for 50 years. Right. So maybe they weren't used to like some threat growing exponentially. Yeah, it, it's about imagination. And, and it's hard to change institutions that have their own systems in place and their own ways of, of thinking in place. And that's what's really difficult because the more imaginative you are, the harder it is to communicate. You asked for me about why I'm, I'm no longer uh, writing sci-fi novels, which I, I certainly will write, will write more. And the issue was when I started writing, I started 
when I recognized 23, 24 years ago that this was this genetics and biotech revolutions were such a big deal. The first thing I did was I educated myself. Uh, and so I just read everything that I could possibly find. I interrogated all the scientists who I could find such a point that now I give regularly keynotes to conventions of hundreds or thousands of doctors and scientists. And so um, at least they believe that I've, I've got um, I've got something to say. And then I started writing articles, policy articles in journals like Foreign Affairs and Foreign Policy that are kind of boring specialist things. And then a member of Congress, Brad Sherman from LA, um, called me and said, I read one of your articles. This is so important. Nobody is talking about this. Um, I'd like to organize a hearing around your article. Can you recommend other witnesses and come and be the lead witness, which I did. And then I was talking more. And I felt like I wasn't communicating. I wasn't reaching as wide an audience as I wanted to. So that was when I wrote these two near-term sci-fi novels to tell the story of the genetics revolution, but in a way that people could suspend their judgment. Because if I said, hey, the genetics revolution is coming, people say, oh, that sounds like science. That's afraid. Uh, that frightens me. Um, but if I say, hey, I have this great story and there's sex and violence and Mossad and, and all these other things, you know, people got excited and they kind of, they learned the science inadvertently. But then this crazy thing happened that when I was on my book tours for the novels, and when I explained the science in the way that a self-taught person and a novelist would talk about science, not the way the scientists talk about science in most cases, I could see people's eyes going wide because they had heard the words, but they didn't know the through line. They didn't know the story. And that was when I realized I needed to write the story, the real story of the genetics revolution, but do it in a way that people could easily absorb, the kind of book that people would want to read when they're laying by the pool or, or, or on the beach, and to have learning about something that's so important to all of our lives feel effortless rather than like going to the dentist. I have to say, Airbnb has changed my life. I just love staying in Airbnbs. Like in about a month, I'm going to Cocoa Beach, which is right next to Cape Canaveral. I'm going to watch some rocket launches. I'm going to, of course, be staying in a very nice Airbnb on the beach. And it's just such a great experience. Like the whole world is available to us now because of Airbnb. But whenever I'm at an Airbnb, I always realize, you know, I the home that I left to come to this Airbnb, I could be making money on that right now by hosting... And, and being an Airbnb myself. So, and I've known people, I had a friend who basically, you know, made a living from turning his home into an Airbnb. So if you have a home, but you're not always at home, you do have an Airbnb there. And it's an e it can easily fit into your lifestyle and it's a great way to earn some money. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. The famous Abraham Lincoln quote says, good things come to those who wait. I wonder, did he really say that? Jay, did he really say that? Can you look that up? Regardless of who said it, that's only part of the quote. The full quote is, good things come to those who wait, but only the things left by those who hustle. Well, if you're a business owner and want the best people on your team, the same applies. And listen, I've interviewed 1,500 people now and a lot of entrepreneurs. 
I can safely say the one thing consistent among all entrepreneurs and CEOs, the, the successful ones, is that it's all about the people you surround yourself. You, if you hire well, you're going to have a great business. And, you know, thankfully, ZipRecruiter puts the hustle in your hiring. So you find qualified candidates fast. This is so important, and I, I want you to try it. You could try it as a potential employer or employee. You could try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com slash James. ZipRecruiter's smart technology finds top talent for your roles right away. Immediately after you post your job, if you're hiring, ZipRecruiter's matching technology starts showing you qualified people for it. And I will tell you that I signed up on ZipRecruiter as a potential employee. You know, I just wanted to see how it works. And right away, it started matching me with really amazing potential employers. So give it a try at ZipRecruiter.com slash James. Let ZipRecruiter give you the hiring hustle you need. See why four out of five employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. Just go to ZipRecruiter.com slash James to try it for free. Again, that's ZipRecruiter.com slash James. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. Want to connect with a family member who doesn't speak your language? Then check out the language learning program Rosetta Stone on desktop or as an app. Rosetta Stone is designed to immerse you in the language you're learning through an intuitive process. Plus, the True Accent feature even gives you feedback on your pronunciation. And with a lifetime membership, you have access to all 25 offered languages. Get started today. Visit rosettastone.com backslash pod 50 to get 50% off your lifetime membership now. That's rosettastone.com backslash pod 50 for 50% off. This happens in every area of science from, and I can see this from all the scientists that I've interviewed where right. we've, we've talked about this. Any academic who writes, like, let's say a popular science book, or like in your case, you write a book explaining science to the layman is going to be hated by academics. And I always wonder about this. Is it because academics can't write? And so they don't, they, they don't like somebody who can write well to the masses. Do they, are they jealous of the money made by someone who writes a popular science book as opposed to, uh, someone who just writes something for an obscure journal? Are they, do they not want the masses to know what's happening? I would think they would want the masses to know because that increases their status and importance if, if the masses think, that, oh, this is important. So what's, what's the issue that they have? You know, I don't know, but one of the areas that I find is that both for the scientists and the doctors, their whole training is to look at the problem exactly in front of you. If you're a scientist, the way it works is you, most of the scientists are solving one very narrow, specific problem. And the same thing if you're a doctor, like if you're a doctor and, and let's say you're an oncologist and someone comes with you with cancer, like these per people have cancer. They don't want to hear about what the genetics revolution will mean for our species over the coming decades and, and centuries. They really want you to focus all of your life's energies. And I was in, uh, two months ago, I was in Kyoto and I went to one of the world's leading stem cell labs and I, I had a lunch with all of the top postdocs. So these are guys who really at the, at the height of their knowledge and powers and working on really revolutionary work of basically how to make an unlimited number of eggs out of using stem cells. So basically you could take an adult By cell. By the way, this was a fascinating part yes. of your book. Yeah. Not that talk, but that idea. Yes, and we'll get, maybe we'll come back to it. And so what I said to these guys in the lunch is that I have two questions for you. First, tell me what you're doing now. And, and people were so animated, they could answer it, and they were just, you could just see it on their faces. And then the second question, 
tell me what are the implications of the work you're doing now for 50 years from now. And the look of terror that came across these people's faces because they that wasn't just wasn't what they were doing. And so I think it's uncomfortable, like um, for like I, yesterday I gave a talk um, at this really incredible company um, that is using genetic and other tools um, to address uh, single gene mutation diseases. They're called rare and orphan um, uh, diseases. And I was saying like the work that you guys are doing is unbelievable, that you're going to make these people who would otherwise die or live these lives of terrible suffering have much better lives. But you need to recognize that there are, that where this technology is going, this isn't just about healthcare. I mean, the genetics revolution is going to go way, way, way beyond healthcare. This is about our future as a species. This is about our identity. And, right, and, because, because, yeah. and, and sorry to interrupt. No, but, please. Uh, because sort of the point, it's sort of like this, this study of the future of gene editing is kind of in the present and near future. It's about healthcare. It's about eradicating yeah. first these, uh, single mutation diseases, right. then these more omni genetic right. diseases. But then when you start to go from gene editing to gene writing, it's like, oh, I could suddenly pick all the features of my life that I want to be. Yeah. Well, the way, the way I, I describe it is that healthcare is a station along the way of the genetics revolution. It's not the destination. The destination is evolution. And that's the thing. And so if you're somebody who's working on the healthcare applications, which is wonderful, and those are the most meaningful applications now, like it's difficult to think, well, where this is going is that we are going to be a very different species 100, 500, 1,000 years from now because of these technologies. And it's all, it's all connected. And, and that's the thing. So that uh, what I talk about, there are these three stages. And certainly the first and, and most important is healthcare. And then the second is uh, direct-to-consumer genetics. People are going to have all kinds of information about themselves and their children. And we're going to have to think about how, how do we parent? How do we think about identity when, when these, these attributes that we once thought as fate and magic and, and whatever else are more known to us? And then the third, kind of the killer application for these technologies is in assisted reproduction. And that's why we're going to move away from conception through sex. We'll have sex for all the great reasons, but I think we're coming to the end of an era where humans conceived of their children through sex. Right, because when people do it the old, uh, when you sort of imply when people do it the old-fashioned way, sex, there's too much uh, opportunity for mistakes to be made in the genetics as opposed to directly kind yeah. of writing the genes of the child you're going to have. Yeah, so so there is a like there's a level of risk that's baked into our biology. And the reason is because we're all different. And so everybody is a mutant in one way or another. And then some of us have mutations that are actually really helpful. And some of us have mutations that are really harmful. And that's just the role of the dice of being a sexually reproducing species like ours. And so the question, uh, a lot of people are afraid of using science so aggressively, but the question is, can we do better than the error rate of natural birth. And right now, about 3% of all children are born with some kind of harmful genetic abnormality. So that's the bar. And once we can use a process of, of in vitro fertilization, IVF, and embryo screening to reduce that 3% to 2% to 1%, that's kind of the entry level. But once we take conception outside of the human body, then these early stage pre-implanted embryos are available 
for the application of science. And so the first one will be um, extracting cells and sequencing them. So we'll be able to select among embryos. And then the second phase uh, will be to create many more eggs using what's called in vitro gametogenesis, which basically means you take any kind of adult cell, but like a skin graft, and turn those skin cells into stem cells, stem cells into egg precursor cells, egg precursor cells into eggs. And in that case, you could have a million, let's say it's 100,000 eggs that are fertilized with the male sperm. So you have real choice. And then on top of that, then there is the application of gene editing tools like CRISPR, but better than CRISPR, um, that will allow us to make at least a, a small number of, of written gene edits to our future children. So I want to, I want to, dive more into that and understand that a little bit more. But there's, you mentioned there's like kind of three stages. There's also yeah. this fourth stage where with adults like us, you can also uh, inject stem cells to change our current DNA and sort of shift our futures as adults, not just kind right. of pre-embryo yeah. implantation, right. but- So yeah, so those are called gene therapies. And right now, again, everything, it's the same trajectory. It's, it starts in healthcare. And the healthcare applications of all of this stuff tends to be miraculous. So right now there's a thing called CAR-T therapy. If somebody has cancer, um, one of the problems with cancer is that you have these cancer cells. Another problem is that your body isn't doing as good of a job of fighting those cancer cells because in, there, there are always these struggles in, 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 inside your body. And so with CAR-T therapy, somebody who has cancer, you take out their cells, their blood cells, you gene edit those cells to give them to enhance their own natural cancer-fighting antibodies, and you put those cells back into their bodies. And now these people have these cancer-fighting superpowers, and so it's a great way to do things. Uh, is that because then, so these new cells come in, they're like spies. They're like everybody recognizes them. Oh, hey, you're one of us, join yeah. the crowd. And, and, and they're like, really, we're pretending, and then we're going to attack. We have this new yes. DNA, RNA thing inside of us that's going to attack all of you guys and destroy you. Well, a little bit like that, and it's like rabbits because these are stem cells that are being put back, and so they proliferate. So you know the cells in your body, almost all of them, are always turning over. And so these stem cells are creating more cells like them. And so when, the, when these um, cells come in, they're a tiny percentage of your, of your circulating cells but then they get bigger because you have your, your blood cells are circulating through your body. But there are going to be a lot of applications of gene therapies that are going to go way beyond healthcare because we are going to be able to change certain traits in ourselves, like do things like changing your eye color, changing right. your skin color. Well, I mean, well, so when you say healthcare, it's really the same thing. You're, you're taking some traits and you're changing them. But in the healthcare case, it's traits related to diseases but that's not your, what you're saying is that's not so much of a stretch to say, okay, well, there's other traits other than diseases that we have in Correct. our genes and we're going to just start changing those. Now, the one difference might be like you referred to these single mutation cases that those are the most, the easiest ones to attack. We don't really, we don't fully understand every gene of the billions or whatever genes in our, in the human genome. We're still trying to understand that. We're going to get to that. I want to, I kind of want to ask some basic questions sure. first, if it's okay. And then Good. actually I have, I have a list of questions I could have asked also before Great. Uh, we get into that, but I'll ask it after because I do want to get to the book. But um, uh, when I when I was preparing for this, I would just ask people simple questions, like really smart people. Uh, okay, look, tell me what gene editing is or gene hacking. And they would tell me, and everybody's right at a high level, just like everyone can explain 
quantum mechanics at a high mm -hmm. level, but zero people could tell me what a proton is. Mm -hmm. It's the same thing here. Like everyone's like, oh, gene editing, you'll just use this CRISPR that stuff case, and right. change, you know, flip on and off switch on your DNA. But when I actually ask you, well, what, where's the, where is, what is DNA? Where's the DNA in your body? Is there like a spot where it is? Mm -hmm. What, like, what's a gene? And, yeah. and no one, it's funny, no matter what, nobody can answer what a gene was. Yeah. <laughs> and so that's probably unusual to you. You talk to doctors and biologists all the time, but if you talk to any uh, other smart people, yeah, yeah. They, they know genes and DNA are kind of like the software or the code for right, right. the human body, but no one could tell me what it, why it actually does yeah. do what it does. So here, 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 and you have, I'll, and you have yeah. trillions of these things. So if you're doing gene editing, how how good could that be? Like, yes. would you change one gene out of trillions? Yeah, yeah. It's a great, it's a great question. So let me, I'll, I'll try because I, I pride myself on on at least trying to be really clear on these things. So everybody gets that that you you have your genes. There's about twenty three thousand um, protein coding genes in the human genome, but you get. Uh, rough, almost exactly, but not entirely. Half of your, on your, you have your chromosomes, 23 uh, chromosomes, and you get half of the, of the genes in the chromosome come from your father and roughly half uh, from your mother. So when, you're, when your father's sperm fertilizes your mother's egg, you have this, this first Jay, cell. do we have a, are we going to have an X-rated setting on this? Uh, <laughs> sorry, go ahead. You have your, your first cell and that cell has the code that's the blueprint of you. On that first cell. On that first cell. So that's the one <clears throat> time where you just have one instance of the DNA that no, makes up you. No, um, As you grow, that first cell becomes two, and then it becomes four, and then it becomes eight. Um, and every cell has your entire genome. So every, it's like we're in this building, every cell has the blueprint for the whole. And so you would think, well, if that's the case, why isn't every cell making its own human? Because it could. It's like everybody has the code. And the reason is there's a process called differentiation. And, and that means that a cell, at the beginning, it's, it's uh, omnipotent. It means it could become anything. And then it becomes pluripotent. Um, but then you, your cells begin to specialize. And so then you have about, nobody knows the exact number, let's say it's 200 different kinds of cells that begin to specialize. And you can see that in an embryo, whereas in the beginning, it's just a speck. But over time, you see, oh, this, this part is becoming the placenta and this is becoming the lungs and whatever. So why isn't each cell expressing everything because then there's another system called epigenetics and that's like the traffic cops. They're saying like, express this here, don't express this there. And that's why your skin cells become just skin cells. Now, can I, can I ask, yeah. I'm, I'm sorry to interrupt no, again, please. I'm just understanding. So I read in your book, we have this DNA, which is made right. up of these chromosomes, which is made up of these 23,000 yeah. genes. Yeah. And you mentioned it's something like 20% of the DNA uh, make up the traits of the human and and eighty percent we used to think was junk DNA, right, but now we think it expresses these other messages. Is it is that eighty percent the 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 part that's messaging to the genes what kind of specialization? No, no, is no. Having? So and it's probably more than eighty percent. But there we have the what are called protein coding genes, and that's because what your genes do is they instruct your cells to make proteins, and proteins are kind of the building blocks of of just being human. Um, but then we have all these other things that are, as you mentioned, non-protein coding. 
And so in the old days, people used to call these junk DNA, like they're just junk that we've just kind of carried with us, which never made, made sense to me. Now what we're discovering is that it's much more complicated. This is like a, a symphony, I and mean, certainly the protein coding genes are most important, but that doesn't mean that all these other genes are doing nothing. Um, and so that's, but those aren't the, the, the kind of traffic cops, that is epigenetics, and that's just a layer on top of the, uh, of the genetics. And so, so, so what are, what's the epigenetics made of? It's, 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 a, it's a chemical reactions like methylation. I mean, it's, it, it's, but it's, it, everything is these chemicals, but it's basically chemical and electrical signals. But That's is that, what it is. like you mentioned the DNA as a blueprint, does this, the epigenetics sort of say, okay, what room are we in now? I've got yes. to build this. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. So just imagine building this building. Everybody has the blueprint for the whole thing. But there are some people who are working on this room and they have access, they could build the whole building, but they're focusing on this room. So in our case, this room, let's say, is your liver. But what orchestrates those chemical reactions? Is it the DNA? So no, so it, I mean, the, in, it's, there is the DNA and originally the DNA is the blueprint for everything. So in a way, the DNA is the blueprint for all of the other systems that get get created, but it's through these chemical processes, but it's DNA is essentially information. It's the game plan. And then the plan gets implemented. And so think of it as like a tree and the DNA is the base of the tree. And then all of this specialization happens over time. I, I have to ask because it's the only time I'm ever yeah. going to understand this. Yeah. What is orchestrating then to make the right chemical reactions? Like where does those, where do those signals come from? I mean, they, they, it, everything is built in to the system of the DNA. And it's, that's what 4 billion years of evolution have done for us. I see. So created, some of these 23,000 genes say, okay, if we're in this part of the blueprint, do this chemical reaction. Yeah. No, so, so it's the epigenetics. So yes, the genetic, because you're, you're starting with this single cell, which is single fertilized egg. And that is then creating the blueprint for everything. And so it is creating this system that is incredibly complex, that again, that has evolved over 4 billion years. And that allows, let's say, imagine, it's like you're imagining this city, you have a blueprint, and then you, you start building the roads, and then you need traffic lights, and you need, you need all of these things. So everything comes from that original source. So, okay, so then every cell has got all this DNA, the, the, the DNA has the chromosomes. The chromosomes have the 23,000 genes. Right. Now I want to, now I've, when mapping the human genome, does that mean I've, I understand what every gene in every cell is doing? Yes. So that's a really important question um, because there are different levels of, of sequencing. And so when you send your mouth swab into 23andMe, that's using a process called genotyping and which they've identified some particularly important locations or relevant for whatever they're looking for locations in the genome. But now we're moving to a world of whole genome sequencing, um, which is increasingly focusing on the entire genome. There's more of a focus on the protein coding genes, but now it's recognizing that all of the genes are, are relevant. And that's why the revolution in genetics and the revolution in AI and big data analytics are really one and the same. Um, so we're it, so to do this thing, this whole genome sequencing, um, for the very preliminary job that happened 
at the end of the Human Genome Project in 2003, that cost about $1 billion. And you talked about Moore's Law. Right now, the cost for whole genome sequencing is about $800. And whole genome, do you mean every gene in the body or every well, you, gene you in only the need DNA? One. So you only need one. Like I can take any cell from you and I can use that and I can sequence your whole, your whole genome because every cell has the blueprint for the whole. I see. So then, um, so, so this, there's two directions of questions. So then let's say you take a, you do a study, half the people are blind or inherited blindness, half the people aren't. Right. And you can say, okay, on this, in, in the genome, what's the statistically significant different thing between this group and this group. Now we've, it's, oh, it's this one gene. It seems to be a mutation in, in the blind people. Right. Now we just figured out what that one gene does. Yes. And so let me, let me then take you back and, and just and connect this to healthcare. Right now, we're transitioning from a world of generalized healthcare based on population averages. If you go to the doctor, your doctor will treat you because you're a human, um, and which is a pretty good way because we're all very similar to each other. But we're moving toward the world of precision medicine based on your personal, your individual biology. And so um, increasingly, and it will, it will happen more in the future, you'll go and your doctor will say, well, based on you being you, we're going to give you this treatment for your disease, which if you had a different biology, we would treat differently. And what this is going to mean is that everybody is going to have their genome sequenced because the cost, I said, it went from a billion dollars to $800. It's going to be re relatively nothing within a, within a decade. So everybody will be sequenced either at birth or before birth. Um, <clears throat> and when that means is we're going to have billions of people, and we're going to have their genetic information, the information of their sequenced genome, and their electronic health and life records. It's called phenotypic information about how those genes are expressed. And then we'll be able to do exactly the kind of big data analytics that you're describing that will tell us more, not just about the single gene mutations, and there's, there are some disease disorders and traits that are single gene, but most of them are incredibly complex. We're going to be able to use uh, algorithms to understand even these very complex traits and whether they're diseases like heart disease or traits like, intel like IQ or height or personality style and all of those things. So it's, it's the big data issue, big data challenge, but it will, is what it's going to allow us to understand these incredibly complex uh, situations. So, so, so right, so the, so the initial kind of healthcare treatments are kind of the quote unquote easy ones where it's just a single mutation. Correct. We, 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 so, so let's say I have that single mutation and I have some weird disease that's, that's rare, that's dependent on me having this single mutation. Basic gene therapy, and, and let's say this is, I'm alive already. I'm not an embryo. Right. I'm alive and we're trying to cure this. Right. What, what do you do? What is it? Like you take a bunch of stem cells. They're kind of like these blank slate cells. You inject it with the DNA that fixes the mutation. You inject it into me. How does it know then to attack all the cells to change my, that one gene that causes, that's yeah. causing my illness? Right. So right now there, there's two different ways to do those kinds of, uh, of gene therapies. One is to take your cells out and edit them and, and put them back. But I mean, have, we it, talked it, about that. Be all the cells though? No, it doesn't. And right now the delivery, that's why I mentioned blood cells earlier, uh, blood cells, which are circulating, it's easy to get them in and to get them out. That's it's, it, that's why that's the easiest uh, delivery mechanism for this approach. 
But there are some kind of cells that are much difficult to access. And that's why, so we don't have gene therapies for lots of, of things because it's very hard to reach them. But we will um, because there are, new, there are new approaches of creating targeted gene therapies. And so some of them, they're using um, uh, viruses, uh, modulated viruses that have been denucleated um, and are being sent back. And so, oh, so, 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 you, so it's, it's, essentially it's programming. Like your body knows what to do. Your, like if there's a certain cell, like your body is organized in a certain way. And so understanding that level of organization is what's going to allow us to, in, and in some cases it will be really, it'll be very technical, like injecting liver cells into a liver because once the liver has those cells, it knows what to what to do with them. But delivery is one of the big challenges. So, so like if I have a disease related to the liver and related to some single gene mutation, you take cells out of my liver, rewrite them, and kind of maybe teach them also how to attack. Yeah, no, so they don't theoretically, even have to attack, they... that's not happening yet. Uh -huh. But that's the kind of thing that I think will will happen because it's again it's. There I feel certain, like we're close to that. For sure, we're close to that. I mean, then that's the basic big picture story um, of the of all of this is we are developing the capacity to read, write, and hack biology. All of biology, including our own. The human body is just massively complex. We talk about uh, the the genetic ecosystem, which is incredibly complex, and that's set within the context of. This other these this systems biology that we talked about the epigenome, the proteome, the metabolome, the virome, the microbiome, and that exists in dynamic interaction with the environment around us. But none of that is magic, and so what we are increasingly developing is the ability to hack biology, including ours. And there's a tendency to say because we can imagine something, it's possible now. We're still at the very early stages. But we're, you mentioned exponentiality. We're moving at this exponential rate. And the reason why is if you're, if you're a great inventor like Thomas Edison, what access do you have? You, how many books do you have in your library? Maybe 1,000. How many people do you know that you could consult if you have a problem? I don't know, three, 400. Um, you don't have to solve problems. None of us have to solve problems that have ever been solved before. And the second something gets solved, that information gets sent out to the world. And so you have billions of people, more, we have more educated people, more connected people than we've ever had. Nobody is having to solve a problem that's already been solved. And so it's like we, everybody is some pioneer at the edges of, of knowledge. So, so I'm curious though, why is the delivery hard? So let's say we know a disease is a single gene mutation. So right. only one gene we have to fix. We take out the cells or we take out some of the cells we rewire them using the latest gene editing yeah. technology and it's just one gene so yeah. we can that's yeah. possible and then i just inject it back into the liver yeah, and, and the, i use the rna to kind of wipe out the genes that are diseased yeah yeah so it's um it's the delivery and it's the delivery in these complex systems and that's why when i talked about assisted reproduction being the killer application um because if you do exactly the kind of intervention that you've described um, but you do it for an early stage embryo, then you just have to make a relatively small number of changes. I mean, let's say, I mean, if you get it with the first cell, that's just one cell. And let's say you wait four or five days, that's a you know, hundred or so so, so. so the problem is 
are these new cells going to properly attach to enough of or the right disease cells to kind of attack That's a, them? It's a really, really great question. Um, and so when that happens, that it's uneven um, uh, distribution, it's called mosaicism. And so last year, you may have heard this story about this Chinese biophysicist. In my view, very I, unethical. I've heard no stories. Okay, I will tell you. <laughs> so last year in November, um, it shocked the world when a Chinese biophysicist named Hu Zhongkui announced that the world's first two gene-edited human babies had been born the month before, last, last October. And everybody, myself included, had thought that this was going to happen. In my book, which was already in production, I had said, this is going to happen. It's going to happen soon. And it's going to happen first in China. But I thought we were two years away or three years away. And it was this, it was this global crisis. Um, and he was roundly condemned, including, uh, including by me. And it turns out that he had done this, uh, this intervention. Had gene edited the pre-implanted embryos that became these two, um, these two little girls. He had done it to try to give them enhanced resistance to HIV. It wasn't that they had HIV. He was trying to give them enhanced uh, resistance. But he had exactly these embryos, it turns out, and uh, had exactly what you've described, is that the changes were made in some of the cells and not in others. And that's what's called mosaicism. And that's the challenge. And so for gene editing the, the human embryos, it absolutely will happen but these are the early days, and what we're talking about his life, and so we need to be certainly very careful. All right, so I don't. Th this will be the most technical question, sure. but I'm just trying to. Yeah, this is one of those things where I'm trying to take my limited and small knowledge and understand a much bigger picture. But I was reading about George Church, who you mentioned right. in the book, and his recent. You know, he's using this gene editing technology based on CRISPR, which you talk right. about in the book, and he licensed some other enzyme instead of the usual enzyme. Again, I don't even really right. know what that means, but is that so that this other en enzyme can, has the ability to attack more cells than the previous one? It has right. more virus-like yeah, capability? Yeah. So, so a lot of people have heard of this word CRISPR. And so basically what CRISPR is, is in the, the shorthand is it's like Microsoft Word on your on your genome. The way that it works is that for billions of years, bacteria have been developing a defense mechanism against viruses because there's this like world war, viruses trying to attack the bacteria and bacteria trying to defend themselves. And the way that they've done it is when a bacteria attack, when a virus attacks a bacteria, the bacteria will go in and they'll send out this little cutting enzyme that'll cut it up into little pieces, but then they'll record what the vec what this uh, the genetics uh, of this virus were like it's like a mugshot and so if it gives like an early warning mm. system because if they encounter somebody who looks kind of like the last attacker they say all right that's attacker an attacker kill him and that was the basic insight that was used to develop this tool called crispr cas9 uh, just a few weeks ago i spoke at the world science festival here in new york alongside Jennifer Doudna, who is one of the inventors of the CRISPR-Cas9 system and is certainly someone who will, will win and should win uh, the, the, uh, the Nobel Prize. And, and basically, that's the thing, is that you have the guide RNA, so the RNA, RNA finds what you're looking for, and you have this cutting enzyme called um, Cas9. George Church um, calls this Cas9 cutting uh, enzyme genetic vandalism. And the reason why he does is the cut is a double-stranded cut. We talked about the double helix of, uh, of DNA 
Um, so if you're cutting, it's a it's a pretty aggressive way to do it. And so in the CRISPR-Cas9 system, you cut, and either if you're cutting something out, then your genome reattaches with the missing piece gone, or you can put an additional little segment of DNA that you deliver with this uh, with this cutting enzyme with the guide RNA, uh, and then it just it, the the genome will just grab that in like kind of like a like a Lego set or a rector set, and so but then why I said there are going to be systems better than CRISPR-Cas9 is already there's a system called CRISPR-base editing, where instead of doing the cut, you just change a letter. And so it's much more gentle and much more precise. So there will be there will be many new systems, and some will be CRISPR-based with different cutting or, or editing enzymes, but there will be new whole approaches to gene editing that we haven't yet, uh, haven't yet discovered. Does any of this like solve this mosaicism problem? We will solve the mosaic problem because it's it's already, I mean, there's big progress in in addressing it. And so if the better um, the delivery mechanisms are, uh, the more that we can, the, that mosaicism will be, will be addressed. And there's some cases where mosaicism, I mean, we all probably are already mosaic. I mean, like I talked about every cell uh, having the exact same blueprint, but it, it probably is the case because you can never test hundred percent of everybody's cells. My guess is there's probably even a little more variety in people's cells than we fully appreciate. Because of environmental issues. Because of environmental issues, uh, sometimes um, um, women who've had babies, some of their babies' genetics have entered their bodies. Um, you know, there's a lot. We we have um, there are rules of biology, but the rules are sometimes inconsistent, and so. You know, we think about um, heredity and, and how it happens. Um, we imagine we are sexually reproducing species, and we talked about uh, we talked about our model. But what bacteria do is they have like these little fingers, and they'll just kind of grab another into another bacteria, like penetrate their outer membrane, and just you know take some cells out, and then and then incorporate them into their body. And we have that. We have bacteria that have entered us. And that is that we have what is called mitochondria, which if you think of your cell as an egg and the nucleus is the egg yolk, in the egg white, we have mitochondria, which are the power, the power packs of the cell. But they are the legacy of bacteria that started out as symbionts. They were kind of living alongside us and then they became part of us. So there's a lot, there are rules in, in biology but we don't know what all the rules are, and there are lots of of kind of crazy things that happen. So, so one thing I'm fascinated with, and uh, you know, you met a lot of the, a lot of the work has been okay. What does this gene do? What does this gene do? What does this gene do? As if each gene has some major role, and that's where you kind of come up with these single gene mutation diseases. And there's a whole list of diseases. But you bring up a really good point, which is that some things that we call features or traits of the human body, like let's say our height or intelligence or whatever, is really, that could be kind of the, the these combination of hundreds of genes. Yeah, and then the thousands. possibilities of analyzing that is billions and trillions of possibilities. Like who knows what creates height because every part of our body has a different sort of right. length or height. Yeah. And so that could be, and you know, when you have two genes that are possible, you have what? Four configurations. When you have three genes, you have eight configurations, whatever. So if you have hundreds or thousands of right. genes involved, there's, there could be trillions of configurations that you have to understand. Yeah. It seems to me, this is where surprisingly Google comes into play. Yes. So let's say you really do have 
let's say let's say you were to hand Google, just imagine this. If you were to hand Google the 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 genome sequences of all seven billion people on the planet, plus all the diseases they've had, all of their features yep. and so on. Now you throw it into, you know, Alpha Deep Mind, the, yeah. the program that Alpha Zero, beat, yeah, yeah. The, the program that beat uh, the world champion at Go, which which everybody thought was going to be impossible, but it was their ability to uncover these miraculous, astounding patterns against every possible, you know, you'd have to look, you'd, to do it the systematic way. You'd have to look at trillions of moves in the game. Instead, they were looking at these big patterns and deciding, oh, we have a winning position or not. So the same thing happens here. Instead of analyzing all trillions of configurations, they're going to find the patterns. Yeah. Is that how they're going to yes. solve? Well, yeah, so that's the thing is that when we have millions, then billions of people who've had exactly, as you said, their genotypic information for their sequence genome and their life information, we are going to be able, and we are already able to understand these very genetically complex um, uh, diseases and traits. And so um, that's, there's a really important concept. I hate to use technical terms, but it's called polygenic scoring. So if you have one of these single gene mutation disorders, it's kind of an on-off switch because it's just one right. gene. But if there's some trait that is, is influenced by hundreds or thousands of genes um, and everybody is different, you need to have a way of weighing what are the likelihood of certain outcomes happening or not. And so the, this application of big data analytics to genetics is already happening. There's a company in New Jersey um, that, that a friend of mine founded um, called Genomic Prediction. And that they're, they're using this process called polygenic scoring, which is essentially using big data algorithms to make predictions. And so right now, they can use, based on their access to not even a huge number of genomes in the, the UK biobank, they have built an, an algorithm that can predict people's height within about an inch. And so, for example, the way you would test that is just like I could take a little mouth swab from you and send it to them, and then they'd say, all right, uh, uh, Jim is whatever, X, X height, and, and they feel that they are getting much better at making that kind of prediction. So how is that relevant? Like, what is action about that? How, how is that actionable? Well, imagine that you're going through IVF and you have 15 pre-implanted embryos. These are eggs that have been fertilized by the father's sperm. So now let's say you want to have a tall, as tall a possible of a child as you can, so you can roughly rank those pre-implanted embryos from likely tallest to likely shortest. And right, and so this is not editing. This is just like, yeah. okay, we've got 15 embryos. We're, we're going to pick this one and put right. it back in the woman yes. and exactly. have it be born. And so we're about 10 years away from being able to do that for the genetic component of IQ. Hmm. And so- How do they determine, like, what is, like, is IQ a real thing? I certainly, it's funny, I was just coming from, I, I was speaking in, in Bryant Park here in New York um, just a, a couple of hours ago and somebody was asking that. And so certainly there's a lot of controversy about IQ. Um, it has a, a, a troubled history. There are a lot of racists who've, who've, who've latched on to yeah, the so, concept. So, so forget about the history, just what is intelligence? So yeah, so here, here's the way. I, I firmly believe that there is a thing called IQ and it's real. That doesn't mean that it captures every kind of intelligence, but it does mean that if you had 10 people here and you said, just forget IQ, forget any terminology, um, what, what does it mean to you for someone to be smart? And then people would say, well, 
um, someone who can remember a lot of things or someone who can move shapes around in, in, in a logical way, someone who can build an argument. I mean, there, there are a lot of these different things. And most of those, I think, would be captured in a concept of IQ. And even if you forget IQ, there are a lot of there are other measures of what's called in, in intelligence, which is a, I use the word IQ instead of the word intelligence because it's it's a specific thing, and they correlate. So the people who are really good at math tend to be really good at music. And I know there there certainly are different forms of intelligence, but um, I think IQ is real, and IQ is measurable, and IQ is heritable. So, and so and sorry, one more thing, IQ correlates with a lot of things that people want in life, which is health and wealth and stable relationships and a lot of other things. So, so that's for, okay, you could, you could, you could even impregnate a million embryos just by taking, mm -hmm. again, stem cells from the mother's skin, yeah, the right, father's right. skin, yeah. uh, you, changing them into eggs and sperm right. cells. And now you have a million eggs and we could rank them. Right. And I'm going to have out of the million, the smartest kid of of a batch of a million. Yeah. So I'd say the highest IQ of of that and and so yeah, and so it's there's a limit um based on the realm of possibility, but if you have a million fertilized eggs, I mean there's going to be a lot of range because everyone can have outliers. It's not like when you when you when a father and a mother have a kid, this kid is 50% like the father and 50% like the mother. There's a lot of kind of mixing that goes around that creates some weird outlier outcomes. Be the reason why these outliers are so rare in the general population is just because they're rare. But if everybody was selecting their children from 100 fertilized eggs, early stage embryos, like imagine we could have a world of outliers. That may be a worse world than the world that we have now, but that's within the realm of possibility. Well, all these kids would be so obnoxious. Like <laughs> if everybody did this, like- They'd be the, cleaning. The, by the age of eight, the they'd, be, they'd be like calling each other, man, mom and dad are so stupid. Let's just, you know, let's just uh, uh, create a virus that kills all people above 25 because we're know, smart enough to do that. But we, we always reset the baseline. And so mm. just like right now, any kid has all these superpowers. So every kid who's been immunized has these superpowers that our, our ancestors could have only dreamed of. Everybody has access to knowledge and, and information that no matter how smart our ancestors were, they had no way of just making sense of the world. They had so little information. So we reset the baseline. Now it's like normal that kids don't die of smallpox. And so it's not like we're comparing ourselves now to some imaginary past. Once we move into this world, people will just not have certain diseases that they have today. Right. But, but what you're talking about is not just a one, you know, yes, next generation will be smarter than this generation, yeah. just in the normal course of things. Yeah. But you're talking about next generation is going to potentially like despise us because we're so stupid. <laughs> well, you know, this is all about culture and it's all about values. If we create a system that's based on that and we say, oh, there's genetically better and there's genetically worse and you kids are genetically better than us. That's really dangerous. But because they will be though. They'll be all smarter than us. But but the question is, is smarter the thing? And I think if we just say that the meaning of life is to have a higher IQ, but there are a lot of other traits. And I just feel like if we- well, if we can we, correct for all of those, like potentially after AI has figured out mm -hmm. all of the traits that are good and, and let's say the next generation figures out all the traits that are even better because our parents were too stupid to know what traits were good. 
then you're going to really create a class of superhumans. Well, so I, I think we are going to do that. But I think in the in the beginning phase, it's going to be select. Like people imagine uh, the process of having babies is going to be like Build-A-Bear. I'll have one of these and one of these, and I'll have the purple button and a, and a, and a you know, corduroy pants or whatever. And then that's not what it's, what it's going to be like. So first, um, just because biology is so incredibly complex and so in step one, which I think is going to be the dominant driver of this for a very long time, it's going to be embryo selection based on a lot more knowledge of the, at least the genetic, com predicted genetic component of that person's future health state and, and, um, and, and life state. Um, and then we'll do, I think, a more limited number of gene edits, but I don't think we're going to be doing hundreds or thousands of gene edits for, for, for a very, very long time. But then there's another point, and that is... Um, in evolution, there's not good and bad. There is just having traits that are particularly suited for a particular environment. So it may be that we make all kinds of selections based on things that we think seem really good. And even things, as we talked about, the single gene mutation diseases. Let's just say um, that we decide we want to just eliminate sickle cell disease out of the human gene pool. And sickle cell disease, if you have it, it is absolutely terrible. You will die, but you're going to die young after incredible suffering in many, many, in, in, in many, many cases. So let's say we eliminate it. But then you think, well, why does it even exist at all? And one of the reasons why um, it, this disease has passed on is if you are a recessive carrier of sickle cell disease, you actually have increased resistance to malaria. And so in Africa, that was actually useful that people who had this were recessive carriers survive, even though even if their kids um, who had the disease uh, died. And that asks the question, well, how many things are we carrying around that are maybe even harming us today, but that could be helpful in some future that we can't foresee? So there's a real danger that if we say that the goal of life is to have a higher IQ, and we are going to organize our entire society around having kids who have higher IQs, like I can really strongly make a case for why that would be beneficial. Because think of all the innovations, all the discoveries, all the music, all of the art. And, and I, 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 maybe it's my bias, but I think that you know, every great physicist in history has a super high IQ. Great artists tend to have super high IQ, great composers. And I, so it's something I personally value. I kind of organize my life around that. I probably select many of my friends uh, inadvertently, unconsciously, um, based on that. Um, but you could imagine a, just a different kind of world where if we, have, if we don't have diversity, if we have all these people who've been optimized for a certain trait, we could become less, less resilient. But we live in a society where people are going to want we're social creatures. People are going to want the same kinds of things. And that's why there's such a question of diversity. So, and then this gets to the question of, or two questions of, one is, again, eventually the technology is not just pre-embryo. It's, I can go in right now and do the equivalent of genetic doping so that my IQ goes higher. Once I figure out how to not just detect which embryos have which genes, but I can actually write and deliver to the cells to change all these hundreds of traits, I could go in and do that. But, but I think that's going to be hard. That's what I was saying is I, I, I just think that um, delivering that amount of change um, without doing systemic harm, because I don't think we are going to know for a while how much 
what every gene is is doing and and it's something like like intelligence or IQ it's so genetically complex that if you went in and did those number of of changes you could and I think would do real damage to yourself and so, that and that's why I think that that um, these things of where you're you're being less interventionist like embryo selection and you're kind of letting nature do what it does but making more informed choices that's where I think we're going to to really have the big impact. I mean, that's, and when you think about that process, I mean, evolution um, has shown us how malleable biology is. We started out as single cell organisms almost 4 billion years ago, and now we are, uh, we are this. We took um, wolves and over 25,000 years turned them into little yappy chihuahuas in people's purses. We took chickens that were laying um, one egg a month and turned them into domestic chickens laying one egg a day. And so I think the real power is going to be through embryo selection, and especially if we can be selecting embryos from among 10,000 possibilities. I mean, that is real power. But to go in and say, well, I'm gonna make 1,000, use gene therapy to make 1,000 or 5,000 changes to my genome, is to leave the, the um, delivery problem aside, I mean, that's going to be really dangerous. And so I think that's, that's why I think that there will be you know, certain kinds of things that people will do, for example, in sports, um, you'll want to kind of trick your body to behaving um, as if you had these small number of genetic mutations that, for example, allow your uh, red blood cells to carry more oxygen. That I, I can see, but I don't think we're going to be able to make 10,000 gene changes in our Right, cells. but again, as something is exponential and yeah. it's just doubling or yeah. quadru quadrupling every couple of years, 20 years from now, that's, you know, yeah. that's yeah. thousands of percent. It's true. It, it is true. Um um, and now very smart people are all working on this. Like you say, they're all kind yeah. of working together yes. yeah, yeah. Uh, in some cooperative way. Uh, but now this, this brings me to another point in your book though, which is anti-aging. So, you know, you give a couple of different examples and, and you quote, um, a prior podcast guest, Dan Buettner. Dan's uh, a, Dan, is, can we pause? I love Dan. His Dan's wife, a great guy. And have you met his wife, Kathy? I have not. Um, She's but great it, too. It's funny. Dan's been on my podcast either once or twice. I forget. Back in 2014, yeah. when Blue Zones yeah. and the Blue Zone Diet sure. came yep. out. But then we just ran into him in a grocery store on the Upper West Side here, like just by random. I mean, I didn't yeah, know what I he looked him. like, and yeah. he recognized me. Oh, that's great. And and we were able to talk. So I'm looking yeah. forward to eventually having on again. For anyone who doesn't know, the Blue Zones is an excellent book about these areas in the world where there's a, a statistically significant number of centenarians, centent I don't know how to say it, that people yeah. who live longer than 100 yeah. with high quality of life. They don't right. just live longer than 100, they have also, they don't have wrinkles or whatever. <laughs> so it's, it's a great book, but you 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 talk to him and you, and you mention him and you go, you talk about various studies, like for instance, calorie, you know, various calorie restriction studies have shown that in mice, you know, if you restrict calories twice a week, uh, they might live 25% longer. You know, there's right. various studies right. like that. I don't know if I'm getting the, the numbers or the animals right. But um, you could imagine if there's a single cell mutation or just a few cells mutation that allows us to grab nutrients from food in a more efficient way so we don't have to eat as many calories, you could imagine some delivery system that's simple enough because it's a single gene mutation that would extend life. Yeah, no, so I think that, that there is a great 
um, possibility to extend human life. And I definitely think that it's it's going to happen. And and the reason why I believe it's going to happen is you just have to look at the across, across the animal world where there are just different species that live longer, not just um, than other species, but that live longer than related species or, or organisms. Like so there are some clams, average clam, the quahog clam lives around 40 years, but then they have these long-lived clams that can live over 500. And then they have average mice can live a few, mouse can live a few years, but they have these naked mole rats, which are, are somewhat uh, related that can live around 30 years. And what's so, the difference between those two? Well, so let's let's t- take the naked mole rats, which I write about in in my uh, in my book. The naked mole rats live underground, uh, and because they live underground, um, they haven't had they have been protected, um, and so they haven't had to put all of this energy into developing mechanisms to fight each other or fight other uh, to fight predators. And when you think of it, like all of life. And all of evolution is a trade-off because we're all the organisms you're competing with other with other organisms like you. And then all of the organisms like you are competing with the other organisms that are trying to kill you. So if you're a mouse, you're competing with other mice to procreate. And then all of mice are competing with the cats and the birds and the other predators who want to who want to eat on them. And so there's just different trade-offs. And so like uh, the the um the clams, these deep water clams live in in these very cold environments. They have very slow metabolism because they can, because they're in this protected environment. The naked mole rats, um, they're in this protected environment. They don't have to have horns. Like when you think of like a, um, uh, like a buck with these huge horns, it's kind of a waste of energy. Like if you think that, that you have to allocate energy as a species to do certain things, like why have these horns or like peacocks with the feathers? And the answer is either to fight or to attract mates. But these guys who are living underground, it's kind of a low stress life. And that's why and no a lot one could of, see them. So no the mating is yeah. not an issue. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's like, you don't know ugly. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, it's like <laughs> every naked mole rat is fine because you're underground, you can't see. So, so this is a good though analogy on how to live life. Like it all boils down to how much energy you expend on different things. So for instance, yeah. Angry people who, who are yelling all the time are probably more susceptible to diseases commonly associated with older age, like heart well, attacks. We know that to be true, uh, that if you have a, a, and Dan writes about that in his, in his book, if you're just stressed out all the time, you are going to harm yourself. If you're not sleeping, uh, you're, going to, um, you're going to harm yourself. And it and- could suggest why calorie restriction might work because every additional calorie is harder to digest. Does that it suggest could be, yeah, diet? But, but well, I, I, where, what I would say is um, that your cells are always having to figure out how to allocate the energy resources that they have. And the two options are growth and repair. And so um, when you are younger, you really need to allocate a lot of energy toward growth. But as you get older, um, if your cells can move into this slower repair mode, just think of it, it's like like your grandmother with the car, like the car lasts longer uh, because she drives it slowly to the grocery store and that's kind of it. If your grandmother was like out, you know, on the high, on the Autobahn with the pedal to the metal, the car wouldn't, wouldn't last uh, as long. Particularly with my grandmother, yeah, she we, would, that would be a crash. <laughs> yeah, I think everybody's grandmother. Um, and so that's, that's basically the, the, the thing. And so that's why when our cells are in some of these stressful situations, they say, hey, 
now is this is a rough time, like, and that's why calorie restriction works is because your cells are saying, like, this is a rough time. I don't know if there's going to be enough energy, energy through food and through sugar. And so I'm going to kind of hunker down. I'm going to go into screensaver mode. And we can get ourselves to go into screensaver mode for extended periods of time. That kind of, it allows us to last longer. It's just like the clams on the bottom of the ocean. But I sort of feel like you're, it's not that you're suggesting, but I'll pretend you are for a second. It's sort of like you're suggesting with that, oh, if I just like watch TV and sit on the couch and don't move and eat maybe just a little bit each day and then sleep, that yeah. would, I would live the longest. The reason why I'm not is that this is happening on a cellular level. And so when you are doing that life, laying on the couch and eating and, and, and watching TV, um, the message that you're giving to yourself is plenty because you're eating, if you're eating, but if you're laying on your couch doing calorie restriction, like that's certainly better than laying on your couch and gorging yourself. But if you're exercising, so when we're exercising, our body also says, hey, um, we are in this higher, this higher stress environment. We need to allocate our, our energy. And it's, it's very interesting. Um, there are a lot of now, I mean, the oldest Holocaust survivors are now, are now dying. And there are, you know, every few months, there'll be a great obituary of somebody in the New York Times. And it'll talk about how these people, they went through these incredibly, these periods of incredible stress. And nevertheless, they lived to be, you know, there's a guy in Israel lived to be like 113. But in a way, what happened, what seems to have happened is that when they were in those moments of stress, their body said, hey, this isn't a world of plenty. We don't know if we're getting enough energy, we're going to hunker down. So their bodies became like those clams at the bottom of the, uh, of the ocean. And so then oh. that's, and that's why, so basically, what these there's a whole new round of, of of drugs which are there's metformin and rapamycin and others and I, I write about them in the book and and what they are doing is mimicking in many ways your body's cellular response to whether it's calorie restriction or extreme exercise and that's that's the first level of where there will be i think the within a decade people will take a personalized anti-aging drug and it probably will have you know, some elements of, of metformin, which is a type two diabetes drug, maybe some rapamycin, there's a nicotinamide, NMN or NR. Um, so that's, that's uh, phase one. But then beyond that, I'm sure you've, you've heard of what's called parabiosis. And so the examples that they're doing is they take an old mouse, it's kind of, don't do this at home, uh, listeners, <clears throat> but you take an old mouse and a young mouse, cut open the old mouse, cut open the young mouse, and just stitch them together. So now you have this Siamese twin mice, one is old and one and one's young. And what they find is in many ways, the old mouse becomes young and the young mouse becomes old. Like the old mouse's fur gets better, its muscle tone gets better, its brain gets sharper, which they know from doing biopsies after. Unfortunately, nothing good happens if you get sewed together with another mouse. Um, and the reverse is true for the young mouse. And what they are discovering is that there's something in blood plasma. They haven't exactly identified it or isolated it, but that has these, you, these rejuvenating factors. And then what we're doing, what people are doing is sequencing these centenarians. So these people who are these super agers. And it turns out that the people who live into their hundreds are actually living healthier. It's not that people are like living like vegetables. These are people who have been, are healthier longer. The average cost, medical cost for someone who dies past a hundred 
is 30% of the medical cost of someone who dies in their, in their 70s. So these mm -hmm. people are living healthy longer. And they're doing it because of their genetics. Like if having good habits, that can get you maybe into your 90s. But to get to 100, past 100, it really has to be genetics. But those genetics, so you could replicate the genetics. Or remember I, I talked about how genes tell cells how, the, how to create proteins? So you could say, well, what genes do these superagers have and what are those genes doing? And how can we replicate what those genes are doing without necessarily changing the genes? So there's a lot that's, that's happening. And I, I definitely think that this is an area where it won't be as easy as it has been for the last century because where we've used sanitation and nutrition and healthcare, and that's uh, brought these gains. Um, but there will be some very, very meaningful gains. And, and that's great. People worry about overpopulation. I just think it's a, when a 100-year-old per, person gets dementia, what a waste. We've invested 100 years of that person. Let's, I'd love to have five more years or 10 more years or 20 more years. So, so I want to um, also explore. I was reading about one thing you did, uh, I guess, like 10 or so years ago. Yeah. Uh, you were in, or you know, maybe it was more recent, actually. Yeah. Uh, you were in like some kind of think tank where you had to um, brainstorm on <laughs> yeah. uh, possible methods of warfare, I guess, against us, I'm assuming. Yeah. Um, and I've heard that from other, some other podcast guests, particularly among thriller writers. They've been like gathered together. And I don't know if it was the same group or, or program that you were a part of. Um, was it because you were a science fiction novelist? Was it because of other things? Yeah. And like, what what was that all about? Yeah, yeah. So I, I'm smiling, although your listeners can't see it, um, unless they're on YouTube, um, because it was such a, a crazy and and great and weird experience. So I certainly I was invited by a a contractor working for the Defense Department. I won't say who they are um, because it was such a, a funny experience. So it was it was futurists. And and sci-fi novelists, and so we, the goal was to kind of think of future technologies and how they would be applied, and, and particularly uh, genetics. And so they kind of first they broke us into groups, and then they had us come back and say, well, if what what would we do? What are, what are the applications of genetic technologies that we were imagining? And so the first group um, they gave, came and they said, we're going to make these super soldiers. And I said, oh, that's interesting. Tell me um, what what your soldiers are going to do. And they're going to say like, they said like big muscles. And I said, all right, everything else is the same, but your guys have big muscles. And they go, yeah. And I said, well, does my side, do we still have the same technology? And they said, yeah. And I said, all right, I'm going to shoot the guy with big muscles. And then it was like, all right, he's able to uh, hold his breath underwater. I, I'm going to shoot that guy. And kind of everything. And it's funny how it's going from like 1940s yeah. comics to 1960s yeah. comics. You know, it's the same. And so what I, my point is that the real competition is super societies. And that's why that brings back this issue of, of diversity, that we, if we make everybody alike, we're going to be weaker. Like we are stronger collectively because of our, of our diversity. We have all these different skill sets. I mean, you're a, na a natural born podcaster. Nobody would have known to select you as an embryo to be a podcaster. It was a thing that didn't even exist. And so we're going to have to recognize that we will compete as a society. And so societal organization is what's really important. And diversity is an essential underpinning of that. But how do, you, how do we think about that when each person is going to want to optimize based on the rules that they see around them? People are going to think, well, certain 
your IQ is better or stronger is better. Or taller. But, let, but let me say one more funny thing because I've never said it on a podcast, but it was so funny. One of these groups came back with their whole thing about super, how they were going to genetically engineer these, these, these people. And they, the problem that they had identified <laughs> was that um, soldiers operating behind enemy lines, uh, according to them, tend to get caught. And these guys said, well, we're going to create a machine. Um, so, and <laughs> we're gonna, I'm just gonna say it. We're gonna create a machine that these soldiers, these special forces guys can take with them, and then they can um, excrete. They can go to the toilet, into this little machine, and add leaves, and then stir it up and then they're going to be genetically engineered so they can live off of that, but not leave a trail. And then they can feed that. <laughs> and, I, and I was like, I know- I give credit for the imagination. It's like, I know that we're talking about future technology, but sorry, so these guys are gonna come, they're gonna be behind enemy lines with a special box that allows them to eat their own shit. And then in order to make friends, they're going to feed that <laughs> to other people, but it shows, the people are thinking creatively. So, so, you know, what, what does the U S government do with this information? <laughs> well, with this one, I, I have no idea. Um, but I definitely think that the U S military and every military really needs to think about how these revolutionary technologies are going to, to impact yeah. us. Certainly AI autonomous killer robots. And the but way, what about the obvious though, yeah. of like using these techniques of taking a sample polio virus, making it yeah. wild, which yeah. can't be, um, protected by the vaccine right? and just, and making it super virulent yeah. uh, and contagious. W wouldn't that be the Like yeah. even with the technology yes, we have yeah. now. No, so that is such a tremendous threat. And because the, the, the technology is distributed, the, the threshold for being able to do that is lower. I mean, it was only a year and a half ago, a group of scientists in a university lab in Canada uh, they spent $100,000 and were able to create an extremely virulent strain of horsepox, which is a relative of, uh, of smallpox. And that's 100,000. My guess is now it would be 40 or 50,000. In five years, it'll be 10,000. So this stuff, it, it's very, very real. And that's why all of our societies and our militaries really need to be aware that certainly biotech um, could be a, a realm of conflict in the future. Certainly, artificial intelligence and autonomous killer uh, robots. And there are a lot of issues. And that's, in a way, I mean, I'm out lecturing on this stuff almost every day. And what I say is, in the old days, not everybody had to be a futurist. Not everybody had to think like a science fiction writer. But we're in a world of, as you mentioned, exponential change. And so everybody needs to be a futurist. You can't just say, oh, this is the world as it is, and I'm just going to rest here. So, 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 so this leads to, let's say, I know I've taken up a lot of your time and I really appreciate it. No, I'm happy but, to be but, here. You know, futurist. Okay, everyone has to be a futurist. We identified something before which seems common among futurists or at least the ones who have laws named after them, <laughs> which is that take something that seems useful, but it's really small right now, but we've identified that it's growing exponentially and there's no reason for that exponential growth to stop. So computers in the 60s, were useful and had been around for 20 years at that point and were still s small in terms of their power, but Moore had noticed they were doubling in computing power every two years and that law pretty much still holds. Solar power, I think it's like 4X every year yeah. uh, in terms of capacity of a solar panel. Certainly with the 
genome sequencing. It's it, the price is like having every year or so. Um, so this exponential stuff, what other even, so one question is what other trends do you see kind of with this expen exponential pattern that's better that interesting and how do, how would you research even more meta? How would you research what other trends are out there? Yeah. So certainly the, these big trends, certainly AI and anything that gets digitized will get on this, um, uh, on this exponential curve. And so within this world, synthetic biology is the, what I think is, is going to really uh, fundamentally transform the world around us. And I talked about for making humans, it won't be Build-A-Bear, but for doing a lot of other manufacturing, um, for creating- DNA computing. Yeah, well, so, so DNA computing is essentially synthetic biology and they have these DNA synthesizers, um, which are basically creating life. And it's very, very, simple now, but like all of these things, it's going to get more complex. And so there are a lot of, of manufacturing processes, for example, that things that we do that come from, na from nature, like leather, um, but we're going to be able to make leather. Um, we're going to, it's already happening to be able to make meat, but you're not having to, to kill an animal. Um, but we're going to be able to do so many things. So this whole field of synthetic biology is just, it's going to really just change a, a lot of things. And then autonomy. Um, people think about the applications of autonomy for, um, for autonomous cars, um, but we're going to have autonomous lots of different stuff. And the, this, the connection of 5G, so 5G and, and Donald Trump announced 6G, which had, uh, he was the first one to mention it, um, but 5G and beyond, so that the connectivity of objects is going to be ubiquitous and, and free. And, and um, so we're just going to have, we're going to think about space in such different ways. Uh, and then we're using that we, right now, the way we're thinking about these technologies is we are articulating problems and then having those problems solved or try to solve them using our tools. But we're going to, in the not too distant future, arrive at a place where our technology will be generating problems to solve and answering them with a different form of knowledge than what we have. The, the outcomes will be useful to us and will be highly useful. And I think that's one of these hard things is that, that for us to see is just how we, we can understand how we're going to have better tools to do what we already do. But it's really difficult for us to think that there are going to be other forces, even forces of our creation, that are articulating problems and then solving those problems, ideally for our uh, for our benefit. What about something simple like, um, I don't I don't know, like do you do you look at trends in? This is going to sound sure, so basic no, now after this, yeah. like trends in like marijuana legalization or stuff oh, like that. Yeah, well, I think that is kind of the the cat is out of the bag. So so marijuana. Um, psilocybin. Now there's like everywhere you look, people, everyone's talking about psilocybin and magic mushrooms. They've been um, uh, legalized or at least decriminalized in in Denver and uh, and and Oakland. Um, so yeah, so I think those those kinds. Of, but you talked about earlier with with you know trends that you can kind of see, and those I think we're we're already seeing and. And even with things like like psilocybin, when I was on the Joe Rogan show, he pushed me really hard on psilocybin so much that my mother called me after her and said, "Like, why? How come you haven't done magic mushrooms? My friend Roz in Berkeley, 
um, hopefully Roz isn't listening. Um, she she did ecstasy and she loved it. And, and Roz <laughs> is, I think, in her eighties. Um, but I think you know it's it's funny. People say, oh, we can't have have uh, magic mushroom legalization. And I and there's a part of me that actually is for a nanny state. But we have kind of half of everybody in this country, and so many of our kids are on. SSRIs, antidepressants, Ritalin, and those are, are incredibly powerful drugs. So I just think we need to have an honest conversation about, uh, about how we're using substances responsibly. And then I guess another question I have is it's just like you were in Cambodia, you're a White House fellow, you're like doing these other things, and then you just decide to write like a couple of science fiction novels and well, they get published and no problem. That was that was that. You know, every, how, do you, how do you write a science fiction novel? So the the key of like when I learned, I was uh, I did a junior year abroad at Cambridge when I was uh, I guess nineteen, and I met these these English kids, and they they told me like the trick is to do really hard things, but don't tell anybody they're really hard. So like when you're done with a book, like you you forget how painful it is to write any book, and so for me these like I love having written, I actually love the process of writing, but it is painful. It is your Particularly soul. for a book. Like oh I always God, say, yeah. so I've written a bunch of books. I always say in the middle of writing a book, I am never ever going to write another book. And then of time. course a year later I'm writing no, another book. Every but. time. It's like, like seriously, like this book, I thought like that is- Well, this all, took you 24 years yeah, to write. exactly. I thought this is all I have to say. I have wrung my soul dry. There's nothing more. And I remember thinking that for the, for the last book. And, and so- for me, it wasn't like I just you know wrote these. I've written now three novels, um, um, but it's like you you feel something inside of you, and then you start forming it in your mind of like ideas. And then the ideas start to take form, and then it's like it's actually it's like a catharsis to kind of get it out. And then now I mean, I'm on my my uh, my book tour, but it's wonderful to have a kind of like your most intimate ideas get translated into this object that then people are taking and consuming in their own terms. And that's what I love. I mean, that's what, what makes me happiest is if one person I don't know has my book and has a conversation with someone else that I don't know. Because I, I certainly believe um, that these technologies, certainly AI and, and, the, and genomics, genetics revolution, are going to fundamentally transform our lives. Um, but everybody needs to be part of the conversation about how. Everybody needs to have enough information so that they can they can have a dialogue with people around them so they can ask tough questions to the people who are representing them of like what are you doing like what are you doing to help us prepare for this future that's going to be so so different well i have an idea for your next book which is you should you should teach people how to be futurists. Give the yeah, tools sure. for how to be futurists. Yeah. And because and, you just said everybody's going to need to be it. one. Yeah. And then there's so many benefits to that too, whether it's investing, entrepreneurship, safety, well-being, wellness, health. So it's an, it, But it's a hard thing. You have to learn how to find these patterns, identify which ones are going to probably continue. And so on. anyway, it's just an idea. Great idea. But Jamie Messel... <laughs> Thank you so much. How long has this podcast been? 98 minutes. Thank you so much for spending the last 100 minutes. Uh, well, then we have to we, we have to stall for 2 minutes to yeah, get we there. Yeah, we'll, <laughs> we'll we'll do that. Wait, let me just no, check no. my notes cuz I wrote three yeah, yeah, three yeah. things down for my final sure. questions, but um nope, I asked them. I did ask them. So, 
Uh, oh, I forgot to mention, you're yeah. an ultra marathoner too. Yes. On top of junior year in Cambridge, which I didn't know beforehand. <laughs> so, uh, White House fellow, um, planner of warfare scenarios, yeah. author of science fiction novels, author of Hacking Darwin. First up, again, Hacking Darwin. There's so many things in this book we didn't talk about, like the fact that embryos can be created. We talked a little bit about this, but the idea that now, you know, like for instance, woman, woman couples, man, man couples yep. could have babies that are yep. half DNA, half DNA from each. Um, you know, we we mentioned anti-aging, but there's a lot yep. of other stuff you mentioned in the book. It's all sorts of things. This this book is a guidebook, whether you're an investor, entrepreneur, or just want to be scared shitless about the future, this book is perfect. Or for me, I want to just figure out how fast it's going to be before I can inject myself with more brain cells so I could be smarter. But uh, <laughs> you're doing great as is. No, no, I forget. I forget too much. I've I've early stage dementia, I think. But um, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. I really appreciate it. And thanks to Roy Niederhofer for introducing us. This is this is really great. Thank you so much. Good. Really, my pleasure. Thank you. It's a hundred minutes. 